Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 23rd edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Amelia, creators of the Digital War Room platform for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is brainless blunders in e-discovery searches. We're pleased to welcome as our guest, Craig Ball, who was first and foremost our dear friend, but also one of the country's leading computer forensics technologists, a lawyer, an author, and an outstanding presenter. Welcome, Craig. Hi, John. Craig, when I first read your Ball in Your Court blog post about dumb mistakes in e-discovery searching, I laughed when I read this paragraph. Recall and precision aren't friends in e-discovery. They are barely on speaking terms. Every time Recall has a tea party, Precision crashes it with his biker buddies and breaks the dishes. <laughs> For the benefit of our listeners, can you describe what Recall and Precision are and why they are so often mortal enemies? Sure, Sharon, and thanks. Recall and Precision are, are measures of success in information retrieval. Recall measures how much of what you're seeking you actually found. And precision measures how much of what you found was what you were seeking. Let me, let me expand upon that a bit. A high recall value will tell you that the data sample you got back, such as by employing a keyword search, got most or all of the relevant data you were seeking. A high precision score then looks at the quality of that sample to assess how much of what you got back was truly relevant. Think of it like this. It's like reaching into a bowl of multicolored mixed M&Ms, and you're hoping to just get the red ones. Recall tells you how many red M&Ms you left in the bowl, and precision tells you how many are in your hand. So if, if you apply that not especially great but delicious analogy to search <laughs> any discovery, the problem in e-discovery is that no one can agree on what constitutes the color red, and we're all colorblind. <laughs> and so the reason I say that recall and precision don't get along is because they tend to work at cross-purposes. You get higher recall and search by using broader searches that bring back more information, and you get higher precision by using more narrowly crafted searches that tend, of course, to bring back less Balancing the tension between those two is the science of search. Well, I'm not going to ask you to to uh, discuss the the Van Halen M and M's theory uh, <laughs> along with your comments there, Craig. But but I also loved when you when you pointed out that uh, assuming whatever tool that you're using is going to leave you with a good search, especially if you're trying to find the line to be or not to be from Hamlet, since all of those words are typically not searched upon. Can can you explain that particular mistake? Sure. And John, as forensic examiners, you and I tend to rely upon tools that employ serial search. That is, tools that search every file for particular words each time you run searches. But in electronic discovery, the custom, and for good, efficient reasons, is to employ indexed search, 
where searches are not run over and over against, against each file, which would be a very slow process and thus even more expensive, but they are run against an index of words that are identified in the files at the time they're collected and processed. For those indexes to operate efficiently, most of the tools that construct them exclude certain words. For example, it's common for indexing tools to omit single letters and numbers as words and to treat hyphens as if they were spaces. Now, now think about this for a moment. That's a problem if you consider compound constructions we might search for in litigation, things like Plan B or uh, the CAR 280Z. But another issue for efficiency is that index tools commonly omit short words that occur with great frequency in our language. They're not in the indices at all. They're not counted. And so my example is the famous opening phrase of Hamlet's soliloquy in, in Act 3 of the Shakespearean play Hamlet. None of the words in Hamlet's famous question, to be or not to be, are likely to be indexed as discrete words in search tools that we commonly see in e-discovery. So if you happen to be hired as the great bard's lawyer and he wants you to find evidence that Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, stole his famous phrase and pretended he wrote it, you're going to be a bit behind the um, Stratford-on-Avon eight ball because the tools are not going to allow you, in many instances, to find to, be, or, and not. So you can't find to be or not to be. Your dramatic intonation there makes me want to see you stretch your moment upon the stage, uh, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, want, I, want I am see... the famous tale told by an idiot. I was full of sound <laughs> and fury, but it often signifies nothing. I, I, I just, I just want to see the costume. <laughs> <laughs> and we know how good those legs would look in tights, Craig. <laughs> we, oh, we've all known ugly, each other too I long. I think we're going to have to clean my brain to get that uh, image out of there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, like you, have often seen searches that, that you mentioned in that post for a custodian's name or email. And, and I'll even take it a step further. We've seen the company name and domain name used, too, when they are one of the parties to the lawsuit. What on earth are people thinking when they do this? Well, I think the answer is they're really not thinking, of course. and Or they're thinking too simplistically about search. I mean, search is a, a challenging undertaking when you're using the best of tools, and keyword search is very much a stone axe. We don't like to think about that. But with so much of what we do in e-discovery, lawyers tend not to want to think too much about the fine points as you get closer and closer to the technology. They often just want to come up with a list of keywords. They often go back and forth negotiating these with a great deal of, of pain and strategy. And then once that list is finally agreed upon, they just want to throw them willy-nilly at the data and hope for the best. But what those of us who do search much of the day, every day, realize is that the kind of, of things that work best when you're a lawyer negotiating a list of search terms don't translate very well to quality in terms of the search. So it may be easy to say we're, all, we're going to search for um, the company's name as if that is a, a perfect search. Like a good example, a kind of case that we probably both do fairly often would be allegations of employee data theft. 
someone has left a former employer, joined a new employer, and so the new employer is going to be searching for the old employer's company name. Well, the problem is, as you begin to acquire the departed employee's old email, uh, as you as they are competitors in the same industry, you're going to see that company name, as you point out, not only occur in much of the document substantively, but they're going, it's going to occur in file paths. It's going to occur in email addresses. And it becomes such an imprecise search that it is a waste of time and worse, covers up good searches, relevant searches, by surrounding them with junk. Craig, you also talked about foolish mistakes and using the wrong syntax or unsupported syntax. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Because there's not one universal syntax, one universal set of connectors and signals that work in exactly the same way across all the various search tools, there is a, a problem in trying to use syntax to express things like um, universal characters, which is to say, what character am I going to use as a substitute in a keyword search that will change by one letter? Or what, what will I use um, for stemming, for the various ends of a word? Am I going to use a question mark as a substitute for a single letter? Or am I going to use an exclamation point or an asterisk for a substitute for a variety of letters? And I especially see this as a problem when we start talking about signals for proximity search. And that's going to be where uh, you're using characters to indicate that two search terms should be within a certain distance of each other, typically measured in other words. Well, if you think about Lexis and Nexus and Westlaw, if you think about how we do that in a variety of search engines, we don't use the same syntax. Sometimes it'll be within, sometimes it'll be a slash and a number. You've got to be sure that you're indicating those search relationships, those Boolean constructs, for example, using a consistent syntax. And people don't. We use the one that we know, and sometimes in the process of giving those search terms over to the other side or to a vendor, that information doesn't translate well to their system. So one of the first things I think that should be done uh, in a meet and confer where keyword search is contemplated is an exchange of the identity of the search tools that are going to be used to identify their limitations, and secondarily, a disclosure, if it's not already known, of the syntax that is appropriate to that search device so that everyone can be on the same page and using the right syntax. Well, one of the things you explained was that uh, some folks are constantly looking at data volume rather than at data quality. Can you tell us how people are getting themselves in trouble here? And since it's lunchtime, if the answer happens to involve M&Ms too, that would be great. (laughs) I'll try. Um, Is it possible that someone would be listening to this at a time when it's not lunchtime, right? (laughs) Who who minds images of M&Ms at any time during the day? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, let's just keep me off of S&M images. We'll, go, we'll try to stay on M&M images. Okay. I promise. Um, how, are these, how are people getting themselves in trouble there? Well, they're not filtering what they're saying like I just didn't. Okay. What you've described is a pet peeve of mine. 
And here's how we see it in e-discovery. It, it's so common and it's so frustrating. Lawyers will run search terms often submitted by the other side. And their vendor will give them back a list of the terms and the sheer number of hits. Maybe their hits, maybe their documents hits, but that's often about as far as it goes. Well, you can't look at a search term, see a very high number of hits and say, that's a bad search term. It's not a bad search term, not if it has high recall, not if it happened to do a very good job of within that large number of bringing back the things you're looking for. It's not a precise search term. And so we don't dismiss it out of hand. That My problem is if you just look at the volume and you don't look at the quality, which is to say if you don't stop and look at the examples of what you're hitting in context, then you may be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You may be giving up a search term that does actually bring back a lot of documents with genuine relevance. That is to say, you get the stuff you're looking for. Unfortunately, you get other stuff too. Because if you get a search term that is very effective at identifying truly relevant documents and non-relevant documents, you can apply to that subsample or that subcollection another search term, such as a, in a Boolean construct, and, uh, and perhaps an and-not uh, alteration that will make it more precise. But you don't just jettison the search because it had a high number. That's my point. You got to look at the quality. What is it that you're hitting that's making it less precise? Because it may be a very simple matter when you look in context to add and not for one thing or two things and suddenly you'll have a very, very good search. But we don't do that. Lawyers just look at the sheer number, say that's a bad search, you can't use it. You also mentioned ignoring the exceptions list. Would you define what, what that is and why it's important? Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, to give you an example, right here on my screen, I'm, I'm processing a, a pretty good chunk of data. And to give you an example of an exceptions list, an exceptions list is something that your tool or your vendor must necessarily generate as data is being processed, especially as data is running through the indexing process that I described earlier. Not everything we throw into eDiscovery processes into an index in a perfect way. In fact, it, it often processes in a very imperfect way. If you think about the kinds of things we find in eDiscovery, it's not all chest good old plain English, or if you will, ASCII text. It's a lot of different stuff. Some of it is compressed in a variety of ways. And if you, if you look at compressed data without decompressing it, it's gibberish. Some of it is genuinely encrypted to protect it. And so it's kind of got that candy shell on the outside that would make it melt in your mouth and not in your hand, but if you don't get through that candy shell, you don't get to all that chocolatey goodness. And after having now, I think, have we thoroughly exhausted the, the and killed the M&M analogy, I hope? I, I, um, I think so. Good, all right. So, but, so what you've got is a situation where a, 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 often a significant percentage of what you're processing isn't going to 
open itself up to text search. You're going to have pictures of words that aren't actually text, like uh, TIFF images that are so common in e-discovery. You're going to have, as I mentioned, encrypted. Uh, you're going to have compressed. You're going to have a variety of inaccessible forms of content or unrecognized content. So you always have to have um, a listing of the exceptional files. And this is the exceptions list, the things that didn't process correctly. Most of these indexing tools have a fallback position, which is if they can't recognize exactly what they're dealing with, they don't know the encoding, or they can't get into the, the um, content of the document, they fall back to a basic find anything that looks like text set of rules and just pull out any raw text they can find. That's often a very unsatisfactory, and in fact, it can be a very risky process because your tool thinks it got the text, but didn't report that it actually used a, a rudimentary uh, mechanism that's de destined to fail. So as a good practice in e-discovery, you have to look at the exceptions and you have to resolve the exceptions. And that doesn't mean you, you must necessarily process all the exceptions, that you must decrypt every encrypted file, that you must go down every rabbit trail of using optical character recognition on, on every picture in case it contains a, a photograph of a sign. There, there is a limit to how far you need to go to this as a practical matter. But you can't do it blind. You can't just pretend that the exceptions don't exist. You have to make a defensible decision about how you treat them, whether you treat them, and when you treat them. Fascinating. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Omelia, creators of the digital war room platform for e-discovery. Do you need to strategize, review and produce documents for litigation, government investigations, or HSR second requests in a single e-discovery tool for every size and every type of matter? Digital War Room eliminates costly pre-processing of collected documents, realizing savings of 80% or more, and giving you greater control over e-discovery. Experience end-to-end e-discovery -end e on your Windows desktop, on your internal network, or in our hosted review center. Download a free trial of Digital War Room Pro at www.digitalwarroom.com. That's digitalwarroom.com. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking to Craig Ball, one of the country's best-known computer forensics experts, about brainless blunders in e-discovery searches. Craig, I'm going to offer up a, a brainless blunder. I can't say this. Brainless <laughs> blunder we often see, and that is having searches conducted and constructed by lawyers, paralegals, or worse, the data custodian themselves. Rare is the lawyer who is qualified to construct search queries. Have you run into this kind of uh, phenomenon as well? Yes and no, which is to say I'm, I'm not like the great jurist 
John Fasciola, who suggested some time ago in the uh, O'Keefe versus United States decision that search is, is properly left to statisticians, computer scientists, and linguists. I think that lawyers, paralegals, and others can become very adept at constructing searches. But it's not going to happen by accident. It, it's going to happen by focusing on where searches go wrong and how to improve their searches. Uh, Judge Fasciola also said that for lawyers and judges, for that matter, to presume that they can know where a, a search term can go awry or that what a one search term is better than another is to go where angels fear to tread. Here again, while I, I take the sentiment of what he shared uh, to heart, I do think that it, it's not that difficult for people who devote some attention to it to learn to do better searching. Well, one of the mistakes that a reader posted in the comment to your articles was believing that there is one magic technology that does it all. Um, you particularly spoke about hashing. Can you talk a little bit about that and also dispel the, the myth of the omnibus search? Sure. And let me start with the myth of the omnibus search. And, and that's this notion. I think it's a pretty tenacious one that modern companies and enterprises have systems that they can just take a bunch of search words and run them across the company. That's just a myth. It's rare or essentially non-existent for any large enterprise to have a mechanism whereby it can dip into all of the various silos of data and laptops and so forth in motion and actually run a a full-blown search that doesn't exist. It's a very difficult process to run an enterprise search, and, and you never truly succeed. The standpoint of, of hashing, and of course hashing is that digital fingerprinting of data, and I think it was Ed Fiducia uh, who commented of, about the, the issues with hashing. Hashing is a great technology for deduplication. We use it all the time, but it's a pretty limited technology in terms of applying it to a bunch of files over here and a bunch of files over there and using it, using that fingerprinting to uh, really deduplicate. It, it's a crude tool and you have to use it in a variety of different ways in order for it to really get the volume down to single instances. So while these are great tools, we don't want to be oversold on them. If a company comes in and tells you that they've got the omnibus search tool or that they use hashing and so they can get you down to only a single instance, you need to take those claims with a little grain of salt. You mean, you mean there's no find all evidence button, Craig? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm sure we can both think of a couple of forensic tool companies that would like <laughs> to believe there is. But no, sadly, there is no find evidence button. But, but that said, tools are improving. It's getting better. So while I can't see the button in my lab yet, I, I now am thinking about where I'm going to mount it. <laughs> so, someone else who commented on your blog post uh, had a great deposition anecdote, which I'm sure our audience would love to hear, as well as some advice about looking as, at data as data, not as documents. Would you share those with us? Absolutely. And, and the deposition anecdote, if I recall it correctly, was that uh, the individual posted said that he'd been working on a case involving the laying down of metals on metals. Well, in, in the process of metallurgy, that, um, that uh, laying down of metals on metals is called deposition. Well, you can imagine what happens when you take a perfectly good search term in the context of metallurgy and you apply it in the, in the context of, 
of legal, you can imagine how what a terrible search term that would be uh, in a law office setting, for example, because we don't use the term deposition in anything like that way. And I think the point that was being made is that meaning is subtle, and we use words in, in a lot of different and complex ways. And so while a metallurgist hears the word deposition and says that's a great search term, a lawyer hears the word deposition and thinks of something entirely different. Well, Craig, I guess we would really be remiss if we didn't ask you to comment on predictive coding or whatever words you want to use and whether you think all the, the hype around it's overblown, especially since no two vendors seem to define it in the same way. And I, I know you like the term enhanced search. Uh, how far is this going to go in solving some of today's problems in searching? It has a lot of promise, and I, I'm by no means a detractor. Yes, of course, hype by definition is overblown, isn't it? I mean, that's what makes it hype. <laughs> there, there, there's a lot going around, and we're trying to find a word to describe something that isn't one thing, which, so that whether you call it technology-assisted review or computer-assisted review or superhuman information technology or you call it, um, I don't know, there's so many. I, I've started to call it in, in, uh, myself e-culling with the idea in mind that it's just using technology as a way to reduce the volume and enhance the precision of search. It's, it's generally used to reference mechanized search that allows you to do something like give it an example of a document and have the system show you more documents like that document. Not like it because it necessarily just has the same keyword, but by a lot of different characteristics of the document, some of them having nothing whatsoever to do with the actual meaning of the document, as strange as that sounds, can be used to effectively group and isolate information that either appears to have relatively high relevance or seems highly likely to be irrelevant. What we've found, what, and what a bunch of, of hardworking people who have studied this have found, is that these mechanized tools properly implemented, and the devil is very much in the details, really do have the ability to duplicate or improve upon the overestimated, the, the, the over-cherished human review mechanisms that we think of as the gold standard. The truth of the matter is, human beings reviewing large volumes of documents for relevance doesn't work very well at all. And while computers make a different set of mistakes, they don't make more mistakes and they make fewer mistakes for a whole lot less money a whole lot more quickly. So we're going to have to think about the way we approach search, reconsider human review, and begin carefully and with attention to detail, attention to the implementation, begin implementing some of these new tools that are going to significantly improve search in much the same way as we have seen Google improve our lives. We, we understand how essential search is, how much better, say, a Google search was uh, compared to the old Yahoo search of looking at a, a, a list, uh, um, a, a breakdown of the, the web. For those who are old enough to remember when Yahoo was a list like that and not a search tool like Google. Search is, is crucial to our surviving in this digitized world, and so we are going to be assimilating some of these enhanced searching tools. Craig, you're going to make me go back and change my PowerPoints because you've changed from enhanced search to e-culling now? 
you know, I, I don't. I think we, if, if lawyers spent as much time focusing on how to do search as they have lately on <laughs> focusing on what to call this new search, I think we'd all be better searchers, wouldn't we? I think you're right. <laughs> we sure want to thank you for joining us today, Craig. Sure. I, I, I don't know if you know this, but we have your handsome face on all of our eDiscovery PowerPoints as one of the best and wittiest commentators on eDiscovery, um, <laughs> justifiably so. And thank you so much for being with us because time spent with you is always a good time. I feel exactly the same way. Thank you both so much. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's Computer Forensics, Technology, and Security Services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.